Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It's April 15th, 2023, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter at Jason underscore OTC, or, or you can email me, Jason at overthecap.com. Uh, been a couple weeks since I did the last podcast, just been a little bit on the busier side. Uh, my daughter is in dance competition season. She had a dance competition a couple of weeks ago, uh, so things got pretty busy because of that. I mean, at Easter, we were just busy doing a couple of things for that. Back to competitions this week, but I figure I'll try to sneak this one in. Uh, they had their, they got done a little bit earlier today than they did the last time, so they they were home by like seven o'clock or so from uh, dance competition this week. Um, she goes back again tomorrow for it, and I think there's another competition in two or three weeks where we'll actually go to that one. Um, so probably no podcast whenever that one is, since I'll be away for the weekend. Um, so anyway, hopefully I just figured I could uh, try to sneak this one in tonight. Uh, my son is playing Fortnite and doing whatever else. So I'm basically in the third podcast location. So we've got the backup microphone set up and the, the interesting location here where I don't really have much, uh, much of a chair or anything to sit on. But uh, we're moving to podcast location number three uh, to try to sneak this one in. Uh, so no Nelly the Bunny. Um, Nelly's doing good. Uh, but no Nelly the Bunny for this one. Um, we've got our Dogfish Head 60 for tonight. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't worry. Somebody sent me a uh, Twitter message at one point. Uh, I think it was for the last podcast that they were worried. <laughs> they got kidnapped or something when they heard the uh, Michelob Ultra uh, saying there. So no, every every now and then the the way the weight jumps, I'll uh, uh, I'll go on these little bit of low carb kicks, I guess here and there, just to uh, try to uh, trim off a little bit <laughs> when it gets a little too excessive. And I think that's where that was. So we went to the uh, light beer for a little bit, and uh, we're back down to something manageable. And uh, we'll lay off the Oreo cookies uh, from this point forward. And uh, I think that should be good enough to at least keep down at a um, reasonable weight. So anyway, enough with that. Uh, let's get into this and we'll see. I know I got a couple of questions uh, that popped in on Twitter and um, I know there were a couple emails from before. Uh, so hopefully I can dig those up and get to them. I'm not sure if there's any uh, more recent ones that I'm sure I'm going to miss a couple. So I'll, I'll just get that out of the way right now. Um, I, I guess where to start with really is the, the Baltimore Ravens um, this week. And, and I said I was going to do a free agency recap. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, well, I'll still quickly go over that. I, I put an article up on that on OTC two weeks ago. Um, you know, I'll discuss it a little bit here, but I, I think the most interesting thing of the week really was Odell Beckham going to Baltimore. And this kind of came out of left field. You know, you, you heard the typical teams involved originally, like Dallas and uh, rumors of the Rams. I don't, I don't really understand the Rams aspect of it unless the Rams were thinking of signing him. Uh, hoping that they could have him be productive and probably trade him in season. And then there was the news that the Jets were making a big push for him and that he was going to go and visit and whatever else. And then next thing you know, the Ravens came in and the Ravens just signed him to a contract that is without a doubt the worst contract signed in free agency this year. I mean, it's not even close. Um, this is now it's only a one year contract, but as far as contracts go, I mean, th this is one of the worst team deals um, pretty much in recent memory. Uh, you know, you're looking back and you're still thinking that 
this is the guy who played on the Giants all those years ago. Um, he was never the same player after he got hurt. Uh, he was never that kind of player in Cleveland. He was never that player really with the Rams. Did he have moments? Yeah. And, and I'm sure he'll, he'll have a game or two here or there um, this season where, you know, everybody puts the, you know, oh, Beckham is back, Beckham is back, and, oh, you got to get him the ball more, you got to get him more involved, you know, he's able to do this, that. I think it's just the, the, the you know, run-of-the-mill kind of stuff that happens with wide receivers where you get players out of nowhere that kind of have these big games every now and then. But the money in this deal is just absurd, um, you know, especially coming from a team like the Ravens. So, the contract is $15 million. It's all guaranteed. Um, because of their cap situation, they're deferring $11 million of those cap charges to next season uh, when his contract will void out unless he looks for an extension. But, I mean, if you just sign him for $15 million a year, after having basically not played football for certainly a year, yeah, maybe a little bit more, um, you know... To come back off that kind of break at 15, you know, what's he going to look for if you re-sign him? 22, 23? You know, Beckham is how old now? 30? 32? I don't even know how old he is. Um, he's drafted, what, 2014 or something? He's 30. Um, no, he'll be 31 this year. Right? 31? He'll be 31 in November, so he's 30 right now. Um, but, you know, you, you're looking back at those early Giants years, and this is what you remember. You know, those first three years of his career, 1,300 yards, 1,450, 1,367, 12 touchdowns, 13 touchdowns, 10 touchdowns. 300 yards in 2017, just not the same after that. 1,006, 1,004, 319 and 3. 537 and 5. It's not the same player. You know, so I, I don't really understand where you're going at 15 million for a guy who really hasn't played and has basically been given up on because of whatever issues, you know, that, that might exist um, with the team or whatever else. You know, basically the Browns paid him to go away. You know, the Giants signed him to a big contract hoping it would make him happy and then they just needed to trade him because he wasn't. So I just don't get what you're doing. You know, you, you look at comparable situations. You know, you, you look at someone like a Michael Thomas. You know, Michael Thomas is a comparable situation, right? And if anything, Michael Thomas had way more leverage um, because of all the salary cap ramifications that were going to be in place of releasing him. Um, you know, he's about the same age, you know, productivity wise, you know, same kind of thing, 1200, 1200, 1400, 1700, he's more productive, but different, different offense and everything else. Then he gets hurt and he's just always been hurt, you know, 440 yards injured last year, 171 yards. I mean, just injury, injury, injury. And Michael Thomas signed a deal that, you know, is about so it, it's a weird deal. It, it's a it's a contract that on a piece of paper is probably one year six two six million, but the way the contract is structured, as long as he is 
healthy this year. Um, he'll earn an incentive the following year that's going to end up being guaranteed. Uh, that's about another three point six. So it, it's in essence, it's it's a ten million dollar contract if he's healthy. This one is fifteen million dollars, even if he isn't. And if he is healthy, unlike the the Thomas deal, where Thomas has these incentives in there that are going to be very hard to reach. So Michael Thomas's incentives are hundred receptions, a thousand receiving yards, seven touchdowns. Pro Bowl playoffs, Super Bowl wins, Super Bowl MVP, you know, for him to get those numbers to 15 million, you know, to get them to the level of the, um, you know, the, the Beckham base value. But if Beckham is healthy, you know, as long as he's got a pulse, you know, he's going to get the football. His incentives are 30 receptions, 40 receptions, 50 receptions, 60 receptions. 250 yards, 500 yards, 750, 1,000. So 1,000 yards is tough. 750 is not a gimme. Uh, you never say touchdowns are going to be a gimme. You know, even three touchdowns, I won't say, is a gimme. But 30, 40, 50, even 60 receptions? 500 receiving yards? You know, if he's healthy? You, know, you basically are going to look at this, and you should be adding probably onto this base value anywhere from 1.5 to 2 million of all these incentives. So this is probably more like a 17, like a 16 to 17 million dollar contract. You know, for a guy who around the league really should have been valued at a couple of million dollars and a lot of high-end incentives, kind of like the Thomas deal. You know, this is a situation where someone is looking to get back in the NFL. The leverage is on your side, not theirs. So I I didn't really understand it, and especially coming from the Ravens. Like, that to me was the most surprising part of all of this. You know, the, the Ravens generally don't get too crazy in free agency, even for guys who have been released, and, you know, are pretty conservative even with their own players. You know, a lot of their guys who have been kind of like somewhat part-timers or maybe one... I don't want to say a one-season wonder, but, you know, have kind of shown that uh, big improvement maybe in a walk year. Um, You know, they've let a lot of those guys walk, you know, through the years, Um, regardless of, you know, what positions and, uh, you know, that those those guys have played. And obviously the, you know, Judon, who's gone on to New England, has been terrific. Most of the other guys, you know, have had, some have had good careers, some did not. So this is just completely out of character for them. So I I don't know what this is really about unless this became like a PR stunt. Um, And maybe it was, you know, maybe this had a lot to do with it. They, you know, a lot, I think of the, the local coverage of the Ravens has been pretty negative. I, I don't think it's all about the Jackson stuff. I think it's more just about the total package of what you see with Baltimore, um, where they rank spending wise in the league and typically it's in the 20s and you know you you look at it and they they do they look like a team that is kind of a smaller market team um and that's not to say you can't be successful that way but when you don't advance in the playoffs like the chiefs who typically are near the bottom of the nfl and spending every year um you know people do start to get critical 
And when you look at the years they had with Lamar Jackson and what kind of happened with that with their team and the the inability to really advance anywhere in the playoffs, anywhere meaningful at least in there, you know, it, it kind of brings to mind some of those early years with Dak Prescott with the Cowboys, um, maybe the years of Andrew Luck with the Colts. Though they, they did have some playoff success, but they also played in a very weak division, which, uh, you know, helped them get into those playoffs and then, you know, they had to maybe steal a game here or there. Um, you know, but it, it reminds you of that that kind of stuff. And when you pair that with a team that doesn't spend, um, you know, you can get critical about those things. Now, that's not to say that's entirely true, right? Again, they're very, um, they're very directed, I guess, in what they do, right? They they paid a good amount of money for their left tackle. They've paid a good amount of money for a cornerback. Clearly, they paid a lot to get a linebacker this past year. So it's not like they don't spend. It's just they're very targeted in what they do. It's not like one of these teams that's just, well, I'm keeping this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and I'm just going to find a way to make it work, right? That's the Saints. Uh, To some extent, that's the Eagles. They're a little bit more um, conservative than teams like that, but it's not like they don't attempt to keep guys that are probably worth keeping but it's kind of like that middle of the road guy kind of goes and then you got the Jackson thing so maybe this was to kind of squash that narrative a little bit um you know maybe that that's a that's a factor uh the the only other thing I could really think of was you know this is a move for this year where you just kind of know I, I don't mean for this year actually I kind of mean a little bit for the future you kind of know that at this point, Jackson's not going to get an offer from another team unless somebody really steps in after the draft and they decide to craft an offer sheet at that at that time. Right now, there's no team that stands out to me that's going to do that. You know, is New England going to do something crazy? I would doubt it. Um, you know, Miami already picked up the option on Tua. I think they're the only team to officially pick up that option. Um for one of the guys from the draft class, so I wouldn't anticipate them doing it. Can't say no, but I wouldn't anticipate it. Um, the Jets are just locked in on this Aaron Rodgers thing that's just going in circles at this point. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think you know that you're going to have them. So you you almost feel as if this is going to be like a, um, you know, a best foot forward scenario to where it's like, we don't want this to be any more that we're not giving um, we're not giving Lamar Jackson weapons to work with Um, you know this is going to be something along the lines of well you know we've got a really good tight end who's going to be here and is part of the offense we're still developing Bateman we we still have this you know idea that you know he's going to be a um, if healthy you know he'll he'll be a productive receiver, um, you know for them this year. Uh, you know obviously Hollywood Brown didn't work out, but you know they they did try at least there. Um, you know and now you're bringing in Beckham, who, you know the the PR machine behind Beckham is great because everybody thinks he's still great. So it's almost like you're creating this environment now to where 
you're going to let Lamar Jackson be a little bit more of a maybe a traditional style quarterback. And maybe in some ways you're showcasing him to the league if, you know, my, my thought on this is collusion, but, you know, maybe not. Um, you know, that maybe you're trying to showcase to the league that, hey, look, this guy can be with the right pieces here. He can be that kind of player. And, you know, if he's not that kind of player, well, maybe that proves a little something, um, you know, with whatever offer that you're making to Lamar Jackson. So maybe this is based more on um, next year and seeing if you can somehow create an environment to where you do get that Russell Wilson package versus, you know, whatever went on this year where maybe you just knew right off the bat teams were not interested in trading, um, you know, just based on what, what you got out of the combine. You know, it. I I still have a hard time believing it, but yes, the only thing that, that even makes a little bit of sense in the bigger picture as to why you would be bringing Beckham in. Because it, for whatever right and wrong there might be about the Ravens organization... There is nothing that they would look at in Beckham's history that would lead them to say, oh, yeah, this is the guy that you bring in for 15. Absolutely nothing. Because, you know, they, they, they don't get sold on that one year whatever. And they certainly are not a team that gets wrapped up in production that happened seven years ago six years ago and think it will happen again now. So you, know, you, you wait to see how this stuff works out, but they did an awesome job in manipulating the market to get this kind of contract. The way that the media is used on selling Od Odell Beckham as still a top-line receiver and you know what? If he if he ends up doing the the hundred receptions and thirteen hundred yards, you know that's great. Um, you know that that is one of those outcomes that's possible. It's not probable. It's not even remotely probable. So, you know, I'm not saying that it could never happen, but it's almost like the way it's written is if it's like a lock, like it's a guarantee. Like this guy's so good, and it's amazing. You know, it, it is amazing to see the way that um, really that his side has been able to to utilize everyone with this. You know, they showed up at the owners meeting. I thought that was something that would backfire. I, I thought that was like a publicity stunt. Yeah, and it was a publicity stunt, but it worked. You know, it, it clearly worked. And, um, you know, he gets the what I would say is the best contract of free agency you know, for a player and worse for a team. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out. And now, obviously, you wait for Lamar Jackson to uh, officially come back. And I, I would imagine that's got to happen at some point in time. I, I don't think it makes sense for him to sit on the tag, you know, the entire year. And once you go past that long-term deadline, I mean, it, you're probably not gaining anything out of it. Um so I, I would guess he'd be back before uh, training camp, you know, starts up. Uh, some more rumors about the Jet stuff. 
Um, you know, just touch on that for a minute. I'm sure I got some questions there. Um, I don't know. The, the I, I still wouldn't be worried about it. You know, my, my thought on the whole thing is it wasn't going to happen until the summer anyway. And it still may happen, you know, before that. Um, and the only thing that could change really... Uh, because his contract is so bad, the the only thing that could really change it is if Rodgers himself decides, I really want to stay in Green Bay, and they somehow come to an agreement that, you know, he can stay as a Green Bay Packer. That also seems like a pretty big long shot. Um, I think you have two teams that are dug in for no good reason. Um, you know, th- there is a happy middle ground. I know a lot of people watch that video. Um, that I mentioned that I, that I had done. Um, you know, thanks for watching that. Just on trade values and the way that you you should be measuring a contract and what you give up. It's like the the Packers are looking at this as if they're trading a player in the prime of his career with cheap years on his contract, and that they should be able to extract whatever they want. And the Jets are approaching it, I think, as if um, you know. They have all the leverage because of that contract, and you know I, I I don't think that's that's really true either. I think the Jets have more leverage in the situation, but the Jets don't have a fallback option. Right, Zach Wilson's not a fallback option. If that kid runs on the field this year, opening week, um, you know, when the Jets have a home game, I mean, the boos are going to be deafening. I mean, it, it, it's going to be like it, it's going to be crazy if that ends up as the scenario. And, you know, going to someone like a Ryan Tannehill, I mean, that that's probably the equivalent of, you know, Matt Ryan last year in Indianapolis. So the Jets don't really have options either unless, unless they have a, a trade in mind to go and draft another quarterback. But the Jets aren't built, um, you know, to go out there and, you know, do that either. And, you know, the the thing that I think worries you about the Jets is they slow play things way too much. You know, we we saw that even this this past week with the stuff with Odell Beckham. Um, You saw it with Class Campbell. You know, all these guys that were rumored to go to the Jets. And, you know, the, the Jets really don't put the foot on the gas pedal. Now, they were right to not sign Beckham for the kind of money that he got. And I think they probably didn't need to a Campbell, but you can see it with Quinn and Williams. You know that this is a a drag out situation where you know the the market just keeps increasing every week, um, you know, every month, every time there's a player that's signed, and because there's this big gap now, and the market's correcting itself for all those years that Aaron Donald was blocking it, it's not like you you really have this ability to you know negotiate the the best deal. You know that you you might have thought was possible. Um, you know you, you're working within the framework now of a market that keeps going up, and every time it goes up, you just lose your leverage. So it's like by slow playing it, you know you, you're hurting yourself, and that that's that's one of those things that I guess could concern you uh, with the Rogers stuff. Now, if there is a trade to be done on draft day, I think the Jets have to actually make the cap room before that. Right now, the Jets don't have the cap space to execute an Aaron Rodgers trade. So I, I think if that one is going to happen, um, you, you probably have to see if they are actually creating that cap space beforehand. So 
so I, I think if you see the Jets creating cap room in the next week and a half, two weeks, uh, that's probably a sign that things are progressing on the Aaron Rodgers front. And I know there were reports this week that they're not discussing things anymore. And they're probably not because both sides are probably dug in. But as you get closer to the draft this year, uh, that probably um, gets those talks to jump up. You know, if the Jets wanted to push it, they probably need to get in touch with Rodgers and say to show up to Green Bay's offseason program. Uh, Rodgers only has to show up for a couple of workouts to earn a big bonus. I don't think he or might not even be that big. I don't remember if this is um, maybe his 50,000, which is pretty big for me, but uh, not so much, I guess, for him. I don't remember if it's 50 or 500. Uh, let me look. But I'm pretty sure he didn't earn it last year. And even though he only had to show up for like three workouts or one workout or whatever it was, I think uh, I'd heard that he didn't last year. So, you know, he, he wasn't going to show up for the Jets offseason program. It's only, it's 50. Um, but, you know, if he shows up to the Packers, you know, that at least puts a little pressure on the Packers because if he gets hurt, well, the Jets aren't going to trade for an injured player. Um, then you're stuck. You know, so if, if he goes to some workout thing and he somebody drops a weight on his foot, um, you know, <laughs> that might be that. So he could force the issue a little bit by probably showing up. Uh, there was an idea floated out there this week that, you know, the Packers out of spite might be willing to not trade him. And it's like, what? You, you, you're going to pay a guy $60 million out of spite? Like, okay, you could spite me then if that's what you're looking to do. I mean, that doesn't make any sense in the world. You'd pay him $60 million bucks to basically not do anything. Again, there's a chance, however remote, depending on what you let him do in practice, that he could get hurt, which would guarantee his salary next year, which would put you on the hook for another $50 million or so. The way his contract is structured, you can't trade him in 2024. Uh, yeah, 2024. You, know, you would have to cut him before that, and you'd be looking at a cap hit that would be like $68 million maybe. Uh, let's do the math here real quick. So we've got... Um, let's see, 14 that's times a four. So you'd have 58 million left over from, I'm sorry, that's times a three, right? Seeing how many years are left in his deal. So you'd have 43 million that you'd have to cover from this year's bonus and last year's bonus. Another 24. So yeah, about 60, 68.2 million that you would have to take in dead money. And if he somehow got hurt, you couldn't release him before his salary the next year got guaranteed. So you can't keep him out of spite. Like that just doesn't make sense. Like even remotely. Um, and for anyone to even give any kind of credence to that idea is just nuts. Um, you know, that just doesn't make sense from any possibility in the NFL. Um, you know, but uh, my guess is if it's not done during the draft, then probably because of the cap stuff, it makes sense that it's not going to happen until the summer. And, you know, you, you don't really have to push it at that point because he's not, he's not showing up anyway. Um, you know, before that, you know, and you don't really have much, much there to deal with. Uh, I know there was a report that Woody Johnson got 
scared off by the fact that Aaron Rodgers said he was going to retire. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, that interview on the Pat McAfee show was like straight out of a wrestling thing. I mean, that that was just burial of an organization. So who knows if that was true or not, whether he was really going to retire. Um, you know, my assumption would be, eh, you know, that was a story for the sake of creating a story, um, you know, to make the Packers look bad. Um, secondly, you know, would he... Went after Brett Favre. Oh, well, maybe he learned from that. He'd go after Tom Brady right now if Tom Brady said, eh, maybe I'd play. You know, that that's not going to be a concern for him. And they met with him. I'm sure they went over everything. Um, you know, that that's that's crazy talk. You know, that, that somehow scared him and the Jets pulled the offer because the way the Packers are, if the Jets had pulled out of the trade of the, the original agreement. Uh, we'd be hearing all about it, and there hasn't been anything about that. So I think this is all on the Packers' front, um, you know, trying to to get a lot for him. I don't think this is the the Jets pulling back because Woody was uh, afraid. Um, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, let's see here. <clears throat> um, free agent stuff, and go over that real quick. Um so you can check it out. It's on OTC. Uh, we've got those free agent recaps. I think it's still on the front page there. Um, so basically what we did is we looked at the the net value gain, net value lost, players gain, players lost. So, you know, you had the Bears who gained the most. They gained $75 million, um, this year. The net change was 62, so they didn't really lose a lot of players. Uh, brought in 11 free agents uh, and players they brought in through trade. They only lost four. You know, they didn't have much of a roster last year, so um, that's no surprise that they end up number one in this. And I guess one of the things I should mention, and I didn't break it down this way because I, I won't do that until probably the actual start of the season when you actually see the players who uh, do and do not make the football teams. <clears throat> but generally, when we do talk about free agency, you know, free agency does have some type of an impact, um, you know, on improving, right? You know, you, you've only got a couple of avenues by which you can improve in the NFL. Um, you, know, you always have roster turnover. Uh, there's always moving parts. And, you know, basically you got the draft and free agency. The draft is really a longer term kind of thing. That's not long term the way that people make it out to be. But, you know, basically when you look at teams and you want to look probably at improvement and teams that change the most, I would say really what you want to look at for teams are players that were signed in free agency or traded for in the year that that occurs, right? The year that you trade for the player, the year that you sign the player. And you want to look at players who are draft picks that are entering their second year. Um, those are the those are the two categories that are probably going to impact you the most um, this season. Now, there, there's a couple of draft picks that might be hitting year three that are going to really hit their prime in year three. Uh, that's probably a little bit more position dependent, um, you know, than, than anything else. But I think that's usually the way that I, I really look at it is, you know, your free agency is the way that you, you kind of approach, how do I get better this year with this group of players? Your draft is really about next year. So this year's draft is really going to impact you in 2024, not as much in 2023. You do get some guys who are going to contribute right away. Um, you know, even if it's in a situational role, they're, they're going to do some things that do impact right away. But it's really that second year um, where you really see that level of improvement. 
I, I think, an impact that comes from the team. But in the studies that I've done with free agency, and again, this doesn't, you know, untangle the draft and everything else, but typically the, the teams that don't spend at all in free agency are the teams that um, regress the most from the prior year. Uh, some of that's because they, you know, some of those teams probably didn't have anywhere to go but down. Um, you know, they, they were already great football teams. But, you know, a lot of it is just the fact that, you know, running it back with the same team in the NFL is traditionally a recipe for disaster. It just doesn't work. Um, so you, you do need to make some kind of changes. Uh, typically, the biggest changes or the, the most impact, I should say, uh, free agency comes from those teams that spend on defense. But generally, you want to look at teams that spend, you know, everywhere. You know, you spend a little on defense, you spend a little on offense, um, you know, and away you go. Uh, the teams that usually make out the worst are the teams that just don't spend at all. Uh, the next group would be the teams that spend uh, solely on offense, not on defense. Now, part of the reason for that is because the defensive talent that's available is usually better than the offensive players. Um you know, you generally don't get quarterbacks available in free agency at all, you know, as an example. You usually don't get your top-end wide receivers available in free agency at all. Um, you know, you do get some productive pass rushers in free agency. You get a lot of very good corners available in free agency. You get a lot of good linebackers available in free agency. Um, interior linemen, a lot of them available in free agency. On the offensive side of it, you know, typically you see good guards, um, You'll see good centers sometimes who are available, uh, good tight ends. You know, it's it, it improves the bottom line. It improves the foundation of your team. But it's really not a needle mover uh, in large part because of the quarterback. You know, you look at a team like Atlanta, uh, who's number two this year. And, uh, you know, they've gained... They gained uh, 57, and this is before they, they signed Bud Dupree. I don't even know what that's about. Um, you know, and they gained a net, a net gain of about $44 million this year. And, you know, I look at them and it's just like, man, yeah, they're, they're improved on a piece of paper, but I don't really get what the long-term vision is at all. Like, th th this is a team that's built to win eight or nine games in a really bad division, throw their hands up in the air talking about going to the playoffs, and... It's like you're you, you're a bad team. You know, there, there's no long term. This is all like, well, let's be relevant this year. Um, you know, it, it's just a, a weird thing, you know. And you hear some of the the mock drafts that are out there, and it's like they don't have a quarterback. You know, I mean, it, maybe maybe turns into something, but as of right now, they don't have a quarterback. So I don't care how many good receivers, tight ends, running backs, you know, whatever skill guys you can throw out there. If you don't have somebody that can throw them the football, it's pretty much going to go to waste. Um, you know, but they're a team that that I kind of look at that way. Uh, but, you know, they, they did spend a lot on defense this year, though. Um, some of the stuff they're doing. Uh, number three is the Texans. They win the the award once again for just signing a bunch of players. Um, no real high-end players. Uh, you know, $64 million gained in annual contract value on 16 guys. <laughs> uh, net change of 34.8. Broncos were number four. They added 64.2. They had a net gain of 30.2 million. 
Seahawks uh, were next at 38-9. They had a net gain of 28-6. Giants added 41-9. Uh, they had a net change of 28. I, I, I don't get the Giants offseason at all. They, they, they are reading way too much into last year. Um, I don't like this at all for them. Uh, yeah, other teams that were uh, on the higher end. Dolphins, that was a 26-8 gain. Uh, then you go to the Browns at about a 20 million net gain. Uh, then the Panthers at a 15-7 net gain. Uh, and they added 49-5 total. So they did add a lot of players. They also lost a lot. Um, those are really your teams that really stood out in the, the gain category. Teams that just lost a lot, the Eagles. The Eagles lost $62 million in salary this year. Um, you know, a lot of players left that team. They lost 10 players total in free agency. They signed contracts, 74.8 million bucks. A lot of that obviously is Javon Hargrave, who signed for an absurd $20 million with San Francisco. Uh, the Rams only signed at this at this point in time, they'd only signed one free agent. Uh, and that wasn't even a signing. That was a guy that was thrown in on that trade. So they really had signed no free agents. They added one player via trade. They lost $50 million um, in contracts via trade and free agency. 49ers lost the net of $46 million. Um, Jaguars lost 26-7. Ravens lost 23-5, though that was before the Beckham signing. So that number would be uh, closer there. And the Packers were at a negative 20. Um, so I think when you look at some of these teams, especially when you look at teams that were successful, you know, the Eagles and the Jaguars, they, they kind of have a little bit more of a unique situation because they still do have a younger quarterback um, that has that potential. Technically, the 49ers do. I don't know if anybody thinks Trey Lance really has that potential um, anymore. So, you know, I, I think when you look at some of those things, I think when you look at those couple teams, you would say, you know, the Eagles, 49ers, Jaguars, they, they could all be teams that you, you get a little worried about this year. Uh, in terms of kind of, you know, losing a lot and not probably adding that much to the roster. Packers as well, but the, I think the Packers were already resigned to this almost being like a, it's a weird thing to say because he's been on the team for a while, but almost like a developmental year for Jordan Love. Uh, let's see, anything else from this week? Uh, Jeffrey Simmons signed his deal. Basically, you know, you take Deron Payne's contract and you just jump it up. Um, you know, and that's, that's that, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's nothing too crazy. It's just a traditional jump up in that market. Um, let's see what else, uh, doing a little bit of revisiting the draft series. So, you know, just going back and looking at the career earnings, um, for the players in the different drafts did the 2012, 13, 14 draft, um, I'll end up doing the 2015 uh, draft maybe tomorrow or Monday, time permitting. Um, I'll do 2016 and probably 2017. A um, little bit less that you can gain, I think, out of those. And I know some people had some questions about, you know, using career earnings. And, yeah, that, that's true. You know, that's going to inflate someone like a Derek Carr, for example, who maybe looks like the best player taken out of that draft. But I think that also helps you value the positional importance um, you know, that comes with drafting certain players. Just because Derek Carr might not be a great quarterback, um, 
you know, his selection was probably better or more impactful than many of the other selections that occurred in that same draft. Um, but that that's really the thing. The, the career earnings is just, I think it just helps you, um, you know, put into perspective that kind of positional element that exists, um, you know, when you value uh, the, these things and why, you know, maybe a quarterback is so important. Obviously, teams are paying a lot for that position. You know, why a pass rusher is so important, um, why certain players are. And who are those unicorn players, you know, who really broke through, right? Travis Kelsey and Zach Ertz and, um, you know, the, those types of talents who really broke through at what are considered non-valuable positions. And they've been able to creep up into, you know, the top 10 of those draft classes. And we're just looking at salaries that occurred outside of the rookie contract. So you're not um, giving a, a top pick a advantage for where they were selected. Um, they do have an inherent advantage in the, the way that they're viewed and the amount of opportunities they get to keep playing. Um, you know, but I, I just think there's some interesting information that you can gain out of looking at some of these. And I'll, I'll try to do a summary of it when it's all over with, whether that's before or after the draft, who knows. Um, you know, but it, it shows you how, how off teams are a lot of times when they, they project these top tens and they project the, you know, first round players. And, you know, when you start to see where these guys come from, you can see why there needs to be some importance placed on some of those later picks. Again, it's not that, you know, I think people get wrapped up when we do this draft talk that, oh, you're telling me a sixth round pick is valuable. And you're telling me that a first rounder is not, or whatever it is, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, and it's no, obviously, you'd rather have a first round pick than a sixth round pick. But what happens is that there, people don't ever look at the downside that exists with those first round and second round draft picks. The facts are, you know, a lot of those players don't hit. A lot of those players aren't extended. In fact, the majority of those players are not extended. When you look at the the amount of years that players remain with their same team, it, talking about this decade stuff is just nonsense. You know, the average first-round pick lasts five years with a team, maybe a little bit more. You know, for the most part, most make it to the option year, and that's about that. You know, there's a lot of players who get traded, a lot of players who get cut, a lot of players whose contracts expire and they leave. You know, the draft is no longer about, oh, well, that 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 gives them a cornerstone for a decade. No, that those days are gone. You know, you'll find a couple of players in a draft that are going to give you that decade of play. And they're not all going to be picked in the top 10. They're not all going to be picked in the first round. They're going to be picked from all over the draft. Um, you know, and the, the point is, when you start to look at these things, you start to realize that you have a better opportunity and you can run the numbers to see it if you want to trust the numbers. Um, you have a better opportunity of finding a star player. Typically, if you have, say, a two a three and a six than you do by having like a mid first round pick. Um, I think a lot of people don't want to believe that, you know, is your opportunity at that individual selection 
better in that first round of finding a star player? Yes. But overall, is your ability to find productive players going to be better or worse by having more picks or less picks? And it's going to be by having more picks. You know, within reason. You know, um, but when you start to look through the draft and, you know, even if you want to say, you know, you, you pick out in the seventh round's a bad round maybe to use as an example, but, you know, you pick out that one seventh round player or sixth round player who did, you know, finish a draft where you would say, okay, if there was a redraft, that guy go top 15. It's like, okay, yeah, all right. Maybe there was just a one in 32 chance that that was going to happen. Um you know, maybe it's a little bit more than that, but let, let's say it's a 1 in 32 that that's going to happen. You know, if you have, you know, still pretty high chance by, you know, dropping down just a couple of slots, let's say you drop from 10 to 15, you know, and you pick up, you know, a sixth round pick and a fourth round pick and people just act like those fourth and the sixth, it's like, there's no chance at all. And it's just, it's such a weird thing, um, the way that we look at it, but... You know, if if you follow the numbers, if you follow the careers, if you follow the impact, however you want to grade the players out, over a long term, if you take that approach typically of trading down within reason, um, you know, you, you'll probably come out ahead, um, you know, in the long run by doing that. Um but anyway, this this kind of stuff just helps give, I think, a little bit of context to it. Um, you know, I'll break them down. Well, let me just open one of them up right now. So we'll break down how many years they stayed in the NFL. So in 2014, for example, right now, this was a pretty good draft. Top 10 players picked uh, average career length at the moment, 8.3 years. First round, the rest of the first round, eight years. Second round, seven years in the NFL. But if you look at years with one team, 5.4 for top 10, 5.4 round one, four and a half years for round two, uh, 3.4 years for round three. So obviously, you know, you're talking about players who aren't making it, um, you know, beyond that first contract. Uh, you get to the next section, we'll look at uh, what the results were in terms of earnings um, for the players that were selected. So for this particular draft, um, the average player drafted top 10 had a, a rank of 52. Um, the rest of the first round was 51, so right about the same. Round two, um, average redraft rank was an 83. Round three, 117. Round four, 112, and so on and so forth. Uh, we'll break down where they f uh, they finished. So for this one, three of the top 10 picks actually ended up uh, top 10 career earnings. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Um 9% of the first round of the rest of the first round picks landed in the top 10 in career earnings, but 50% landed in top 32. Um, second round did have 16% uh, of the players land top 10, but only 25% landed top 32. So th these are the kind of trade-offs that you want to look at. Um, you know, but if you're looking at top 64, you know, if you had a top 64 number, for example, a top 10 player had 80% chance that year, about a 60% chance for the rest of the first round, but a 50% chance for round two. So, you know, it just shows you where you can kind of try to exploit that value. Uh, Overperformance, underperformance, hit the target. Basically means that they land in the same round or a little bit higher um, than we would have thought. Performance by position. Um, you know, for this year, left tackles, there was only six drafted, but 16.7, so one of them uh, was top 10. 
Uh, 50% of those players were top 32 that year. Um, you know, and you can do that for each position. We do it by the top 100 players drafted. So you're looking at those that did have that first, second, third round grade. And you can see where those players wound up um, as you get towards the end of their careers. Teams that had the best drafts, worst drafts, um, average draft slot. So the top 10 this year, average pick uh, was about the 30th pick in the draft. So, you know, you had a, a you know, higher picks typically landing in the top 10 this year. First round average selection was made at round 55. Uh, second round was 103. So basically a round beyond, um, you know, is where they're coming from. And then we have the big list, which is just what their net earnings were over that drafting position. So Derek Carr, number one, Aaron Donald, number two, Garoppolo, three, Khalil Mack, Demarcus Lawrence, Devontae Adams, Brandon Cooks, Mike Evans, Jake Matthews, Allen Robinson, Zach Martin, C.J. Mosley, Taylor Lewin, uh, Joel Batonio, and Odell Beckham were our top 15. And, you know, then you start to drop down after that. And we'll give the top 100. I'm not doing the, the whole draft that's in there. Um so you can check them out, and it's just some data that you can work with, you can play around with. Um, maybe I'll try to put it in downloadable format if some people want it. Um, you know, maybe if you premium members or something. I don't know. I'll figure something out with that um, if somebody is looking for something. Um, all right, let's do questions, and then we'll call it a night here. All right, let's see what I can find in my email, if I can find anything in my email. Let's see. When was the last podcast I even did? 25th. So anything after that, I know I didn't get to. Let's see. Um, oh, one other thing. And I mentioned this on the last podcast. Uh, there's still been a handful of people that uh, had a problem with the logins on the premium. Uh, just email me and I'll get it fixed if uh, it's an issue. This was a question that I probably was supposed to answer and I didn't, so I'll try to get to that. I don't think it's a podcast one. All right, CMB. I uh, love the podcast. Quick question, DJ Shark. Why was it reported that he signed a one-year deal when the actual deal appears to be two-year? Oh, I think he, he looked at that, and actually it's right here. Uh, disregard. Mis misread. So nothing. <laughs> All right. Uh, Scott. Uh why don't teams restructure all contracts that a first salary cap hits to future years to give themselves maximum flexibility, then roll over unused cap space to future years? I know teams operate within budget, but couldn't a team just maximize restructures and save 50 to 80 in cap, roll it to future years, and give themselves maximum flexibility? Um, for example, if you have a 200 million cap, 10 players under contract, one year, 20 million, uh, couldn't a team restructure all 10 with four voids, save 15 for a total of 150, then at the end of the year, roll over all the dead cap? Um, Uh, June ones. Um, teams don't do it because of the perception or because they don't trust themselves to not save it. So that's something I've talked about, and that's that's a good question. So one of the things that I would say is that the teams in general do not have the self restraint to not spend it. Um. One of the guys who I'm friends with, I know years ago, had made a comment to me sometimes that, uh, I'm trying to think of how he put it, 
sometimes it's better to not look like you have cap space than to look like you have cap room. Um, and it, that wasn't just about the perception. It was about sometimes doing crazy stuff as an organization. Um, and it's like, even if that cap room can be created, sometimes it's better to just look like it's hidden. Um, so I, I think that's a big reason. You know, now the Browns last year, they did have that restraint. So you saw the Browns as a team, for example, that kind of did that with Deshaun Watson for other reasons. Um, you know, but they, they did basically carry over a ton of money to help offset some of that stuff. I think the concern that you have with overloading the void years is kind of what you see happen in New Orleans, uh, what happened in the past to Dallas and Washington. Um, you have situations that pop up where, A, you either have too much dead money hit all at once, um, where even though I know what you're saying is like, let, let's create the cap room, but let's just assume that that cap room is being created not to roll it all over, um, but let's say a you're going to use a portion of it. Let's say that you're going to roll over 60% of it and you're going to spend 40%, you know, just to, just to throw a number out there. Um, there is a point where I, I think the dead money does become prohibitive if you, that number becomes too big. And it also gives players sometimes leverage um, when you've got those deals that void out to try to look for extensions that might be more than really what their market value is because of the back of your mind, it's almost like, well, I kind of want to keep the player and there's a big benefit on our cap to keeping the player. Um, you know, I think that's what you saw with the Eagles and Darius Slay this year. And I think that was a mistake by them. Um, that contract is kind of a mess. So I, I think that's why teams, that's one of the reasons why they don't do it. I think probably what you want to do is um, kind of stagger. You know, if you can stagger those years, you know, it's it's probably worthwhile. Uh, I think if you were going to do this as like a team-wide philosophy, and this is closer to the Eagles thing. You know, the Eagles don't have it to where a bunch of deals usually hit all at the same time. Um, you know, some of the other teams do, like the New Orleans has had that. I probably should run a study on that to see just how much teams have been hit by void years. You know, Tampa Bay this year, for instance, has got to be gigantic, their number, uh, because it's all the void years hitting at one time. Um, you know, I, I think what you probably would do is maybe go with a more cautious approach, kind of like a, you know, maybe you're, you're, kind of a little bit in there where what you're doing is you're adding in there maybe two void years versus four void years or three void years. You know, you're not maxing your cap savings, um, <laughs> you know, those void years in the future, uh, but you're, you're realizing some of it now, um, but you're also making it to where when those deals void out, maybe it's not as bad um, on the cap when that happens. You know, I, I think one of the areas where teams do miss out on it, and again, you know, I, I can understand also the aspect when players are looking for money and players are looking for extensions. You know, one of the things you can hide behind, especially in season, is we don't have cap room. But, um, you know, one of the things that I think you can do to be proactive with that, and we saw some teams kind of do this when it was the end of the last CBA, and that was simply because of the rules that were involved. 
um, that made it harder to restructure contracts. Um, one of the things that I, I think teams would probably benefit from is restructuring contracts after um, uh, after your final cutdowns. So you're not really tempted to use it, right? And players have many years under contract, right? And so that's probably a good time to maximize your savings, um, you know, and start planning for the future where all you're doing is building up a nest egg of dollars to carry over to the next year. Um, and that, that probably minimizes some of that problem of, you know, spending it because there's not going to be players to really spend it on in season other than extending your own players or maybe having a little bit of flexibility to bring a player in via trade. Uh, but I think that actually would be a, a pretty interesting kind of concept for teams to, to start to consider doing um, where it's almost like, well, you know, this is the best time to do it, right? We know if the player's healthy. We know he's going to make the team. Um, you know, we, we kind of know what our situation is. We're not going to make it worse for this year. But this this gives us a, uh, a chance to maybe even be more flexible next year. And it's like this is this is cap room that's going to be lost to us completely if we do it this season. But I'm really seeing teams approach it that way. But I do think it would be kind of interesting if you saw that. Like if you saw a bunch of restructures happen in September, um, you know, teams creating cap room with the consideration that you're going to carry over 95% of it to next year. So I, I do think that would be kind of an interesting approach. Colby, uh, draft quality question. Every year they say this is a great insert positional group class. This year it's supposed to be corners and tight ends. Is there any truth? Player retention rates or extension dollars correlated with the publicized quali quality of a position group down the line or most years about the same. So um, maybe I'll get a little bit more insight into that with some of the stuff that I'm doing this year. Um, off the top of my head, the answer to that would be no. Um, there is no magical positional group where, um, you know, if you, if you went back and you looked at some of those consensus drafts and you've seen how um, players have or have not performed, um, you know, how that would, how that would work out. Um, I may have done a small thing on that last year, actually. Let me see. So I thought I did, but actually what I did was a uh, podcast on it. Um, I have to go back and actually look, I have the raw data here, but I have it in such a messy format. Uh, I am not sure what I actually had my um, my data in, but I, I know what I was looking at was basically the the players who are picked within the the ranges of the consensus. Um, you know what what their salaries wind up at, um, players who do well, um, you know, players who jump a lot, players who fall a lot, um, you know, where they, where they wind up going. Um, yeah, I'll have to do a little bit of research onto it. Um, just looking to see where that is. So basically, it was the same concept as the our draft board we made, where you're looking at second contract values and you are um, kind of coming up with their their actual salaries um, as to where they go. Now, I was. It looks like what I did there was I was mainly looking at um, where where players go based on. Um, uh, how much they they moved over the consensus. 
um, versus the the actual consensus pick, um, you know, to see where that was. But you know, for example, in 2017, your consensus draft. And I'm just just pulling this up was uh, Miles Garrett, Solomon Thomas, Jamal Adams, Jonathan Allen, Malik Hooker, Marshawn Lattimore, Reuben Foster, O.J. Howard, um, Leonard Fournette, and Corey Davis. Um, you know, and of those players, Miles Garrett signed a big deal. Jamal Adams signed a big deal. Jonathan Allen signed a big deal. Marshawn Lattimore signed a big deal. None of the other players really did. You know, Corey Davis got a moderate deal. Um, you know, other guys just completely busted out. So, you know, I'm sure if we do that and you look at positional, you know, it, it's probably um, no different. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of wide receivers here. So, you know, in this particular draft, and I know it's just, I'm just pulling up one. Let me just pull up receivers. Uh, it looks like the consensus board had Davis, Mike Williams, John Ross, all rated as first-round talents. Um, basically, you had one guy that was paid as a first-round talent, one guy that would be paid probably as more like a second-round kind of guy, and a guy who was just paid as, you know, whatever, like he didn't have much of a career. Um you know, let's see some other positions that are that are there. Uh, let's see, maybe edge. Yeah, yeah. Miles Garrett, number one. Hassan Reddick has, you know, had an okay career. Um, he's come on stronger over time. Uh, you know, Barnett. You know, that's fine. McKinley, bad. Taco Charlton, bad. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, I, I probably should put this in a post format. I got to go through all this data again and, uh, take a look at it. But you know, the consensus draft work is always interesting to me, um, you know, to look at, but yeah, I was looking at it more of, um, you know, is the, is the consensus draft worthwhile, um, in terms of projecting, I think where players were selected and what was better, where players were selected or what the consensus maybe was on them. Uh, but we can go back and maybe I can uh, look at that and, probably deserves a post more than um, uh, than whatever I just did on that podcast there. Uh, let's see. Oh, someone was asking about ranting about the Jets and I want to listen again, but I can't find it. I have no idea. I rant about the Jets very often. Uh, there are times when the, the Jets would at least still be meaningful where every year I would either have like a uh, emergency uh, I need to jump off the ledge podcast or you'd have some kind of post that was basically the the mid-season, whatever the catastrophe was with the Jets at that point in time. So I don't even know what podcast it would be uh, where I would say that it was a specific rant about the Jets. Because I'm sure there's lots of them. Let me go over that. All right, let's go to Twitter for questions here. I think i got to run down to get another beer. Um, so let's grab that, and then I'll be right back to do this. All right, let's take a look at what Twitter's got today. Let's see. Profile. All right. Scroll to the bottom of this. 
All right. Uh, what would you say to someone who says dead cap doesn't matter because you can kick that can down the road forever? Um, I, I think all you have to do is just take a look at, uh, you know, the, the teams that, that have run with those huge dead cap figures and seen how they've done. Um, you know, the, the teams that land in that situation have not done well. Uh, they haven't done well, obviously, in the year where they have all that dead cap room, and they don't do well in the years after it. So it's not like, um, you know, they've cleared the books and magically turned a corner. Um, you know, and when you look at the teams, you know, like the Saints, for example, that are pushing, 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 where have they done well? You know, how have the Saints done in the playoffs the last three years? You know, how did the Buccaneers look last year? You know, how did the Rams look last year? I know the Rams won a Super Bowl two years ago. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at a couple of these teams, you know, they just push, 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 push forever. Um, you know, with players who probably don't belong on the roster, at least not at those salaries anymore. They're not successful organizations for the most part. So, you know, I, I think that's the that's the biggest thing with it. Um, you know, and yeah, while we talk about void years and, you know, creating cap room and uh, moving money, you know, there's a time and a place for all of it. But you also have to be realistic at some point with your roster and you have to look at certain decisions and say, okay, does this benefit me in any way long term you know do the benefits of it short term you know outweigh whatever those long term negatives are you know like again i go back to philadelphia where i mentioned slay before that to me doesn't make a lot of sense um you know this recent lane johnson extension i'm not sure if that really makes a lot of sense um you know i, I don't think you are really helping your short term um, and Slay specifically, you know, Johnson was going to be on the team no matter what. Slay was not. But, uh, you know, you are only minimally probably helping your short term and you're probably making your long term worse, um, you know, by doing some of those deals. You know, so I, I think that's that's kind of what you have to, you know, you have to look at it and you have to weigh it out. You know, there there's situations where, yeah, obviously it makes sense to do it. Um, you know, two years ago when the Buccaneers are kind of defending that title, I'd say, okay, you know, it, there's some sense to be made. But you look at the Rams, you know, you, you look at what they did with Aaron Donald or you look at the Packers with Aaron Rodgers, like that stuff doesn't make sense. Like it's putting a Band-Aid on something that, quite frankly, you don't need to put a Band-Aid on. You know, if Aaron Donald really wants to retire... Let him retire. Now, are you better off having a player who's thinking about retirement now making $10 million more a year than he made previously? Or are you better off just letting him retire? Now, I think the retirement stuff is just posturing, trying to angle for a new contract. But, um, you know, you give it to him and your team stunk. You know, did... The presence of Aaron Donald at twenty million or thirty million 
make a difference either way? And the answer was no. But Aaron Donald at $30 million puts you in a far more negative position long term than Aaron Donald on his existing deal, which was, you know, 22-5. So, you know, I, I think that's what you, you want to look at um, when you say the dead money doesn't matter. Um, you have to do it. If you're going to do it, you have to do it in a way to where you are avoiding the big catastrophe money ever hitting all at once. Brian, I think that the Cardinals, if they uh, if they can't get the appropriate trade compensation for Hopkins, should hang on to him and attempt to trade him midseason. I think they could pull off what the Bears did with their veterans last season. So that's it. That's an interesting one. So for Arizona, you know, it's going to depend a lot on you know what they deem to be most valuable. Um, you know, do they deem the cap room to be valuable? Or do they deem whatever draft pick they could get to be more valuable? Now, I don't know what that would be. One of the things with Hopkins uh, versus, you know, some of the Bears players, I'd be much more worried about Hopkins getting hurt in the interim uh, than I probably would have for some of the younger guys on the Bears that got moved. Um, You know, so I, I think... I, I think that would be a concern for me with doing that trade. I think the second thing is, what value are you being offered now versus what value do you think you'll get offered in season? Um, I know most will always look at that awful trade the Patriots made, Mohamed Sanu, which you know ended up you know um, costing them a second round pick for you know contract or player that made no sense um you know but that's what they did you know are you going to be looking at buying a second round pick for 18 million dollars you know if you end up paying his contract out i don't know I, I don't know if that's really worthwhile um you know to pay all that extra money for a second round pick you know it might be better to just save the 19 million dollars um on the cap this year cut them and, you know, utilize that money towards free agency in the future. So, you know, I, I, there's a couple of different ways that you could look at it. Um, but I think the threat of injury would concern me. Um, you know, when people were talking about him showing up for their offseason program and, you know, you're, you're asking, I don't know if it was the coach or the GM about it. And it's like, man, you don't want him to show up. If you're trying to trade him, you don't want him in a situation where he might get hurt. Now, if he gets hurt, you know, outside, okay, at least you don't own the money. But here, I mean, that's a disaster if he was to get hurt. So, you know, I can't imagine there's any scenario where they want him around. Um. So, you know, I think they could they can certainly maximize their value, but you know, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know what you're gonna get. I mean, you look at Thomas and what he got now Beckham got the fifteen, but you look at what Thomas got from the Saints, you look at Brandon Cooks with the Cowboys, you know, they didn't pay a lot for him in draft compensation and you know they, they got him to take a big reduced salary on his contract. Um you know, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know if Hopkins is going to get that kind of return, even if you pick up all that money. Uh, what does a post-June 1 trade of Kirk Cousins look like for the Vikings dead cap? 
Um, I don't see that happening, but let's check it out anyway. Whoops, wrong button. Captain Kirk. So if they were to trade him post-June 1, they would carry 10.25 million dead this year. And they would have 28.5 million dead next year, which is the same as the way his contract would run out. But I think they already paid him a lot of money this year, right? They restructured his deal. So I can't imagine that they're going to um, trade him after doing that. Let me just see. I'm pretty sure they, they restructured him this year. Kirk Cousins, what was his restructure bonus? Yeah, they already paid him twenty. Um, so I, I I think he's in the cards for them this year. I, I I don't see that situation coming up. NBA on. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, Batty with the Mets. I don't know when he's coming up. Uh, overhaul line. Why are the Colts restructuring contracts for making runs at Lamar in case they don't get one of their guys at four? Okay, so I should mention uh, this one. I didn't talk about it. It was an odd restructure. So DeForest Buckner out of nowhere um, got a restructure where the Colts guaranteed his contract for the year and they paid him a $5 million signing bonus, I think it was. Um, let me just look it up. DeForest Buckner. Yeah, so they gave him a $5 million signing bonus and um, they guaranteed his uh, the remaining base of his contract for the year. So... My assumption would be this has nothing to do with Lamar Jackson. This has nothing to do probably with anything else. Um, this has to do with a player who understands or realizes the situation that's around him, right? The Colts are a team that's probably going to be rebuilding. Um, you know, when I did the team overviews, uh, he was one of the players that I mentioned could go. You know, it made a lot of sense. There was no dead money. Um, you know, if they, they moved on from him, they're not going to cut him. My thought was you would trade him. So I'm assuming that he still could get traded. Um, but I would say this was probably a situation where you have defensive tackle market moving. You don't have a lot of security because of your current contract and team situation. And you're probably looking at this and you first go, I want to raise. And the Colts are like, you're insane. You're not getting a raise. You're not getting an extension. The next move off that is I want protection because I don't want this to be a situation where you decide after the draft that you're completely rebuilding and now I'm going to be out of a job come July. So you come up with a scenario where it's like, okay, we'll give you $5 million now. Um, I'm assuming they, they actually paid out the $5 million. And... Um, will guarantee your salary for the year. So, you know what? If we trade you, your salary is protected. If we don't trade you, your salary is protected. So you don't have to worry that we're going into a rebuilding mode and that you're not going to get paid this year. So my assumption is that this is, um, this is about that kind of situation, not about anything about... We needed to create 2.5 million in cap space to go after Lamar Jackson. Like it, it to me, this just it, this is like a um, 
Uh, it's just a, a negotiation to, to make him feel better about his position, um, you know, within the team and protect his salary for the year. And I think you see this, this is more of a, a thing that we're starting to see, I think, with a lot of players now in the league that once those guarantees run out in a contract, I think a lot of the a lot of the players are trying to go back to the teams um, under the guise kind of of I want an extension with the the real position of if you guarantee me my money, I'm going to be happy. And I think that's what this one was. You know, Jalen Ramsey, you know, after the trade, that's all that ended up being. Darius Slay, in many ways, that's what his ended up being. It was more about having job security for this year and in some cases next year um, versus, you know, no job security at all. I think when you look right now at Buda Baker in Arizona, you know, I didn't mention him before. I don't really think much of it. You know, he's requested a trade now. Um, you know, people noticed he took Arizona out of his bio and then next thing you know, he's requested a trade. Um, to me, that's that same situation. You've got a rebuilding team. You got a brand new front office that's not beholden to him in any way, shape or form. And, you know, you're looking at your contract and it's like, all right, my, my guarantees are gone. Like I'm thinking I'm going to make... I don't know what what's his salary this year. Um, what's Buda Baker's salary? Let's see. What's his salary this year? Twelve million or something? Thirteen point one. Um, so it's like I'm thinking I'm going to make thirteen one. For all I know, you're going to draft the safety, and I'm going to be on the street, and I'm not going to get thirteen one probably from another team if that happens. Extend me. And then your next goal from it is you probably know you're not getting that extension. Just give me in writing that my 13-1 is safe for the year. And if they won't do that, that's when you come back with the trade me stuff. So, you know, I, I think that's probably what this is about too. And, you know, this is just for all of you who are looking to be agents in the future that listen to this uh, or agents now, um, you know, getting your first big deals, um, you know, first bigger clients that maybe you'll get a big deal with or something like that. When you get to the back end of these contracts, man, you need off-season money in there to prevent situations like this from happening. You know, you should not have a contract where your salary, just to use his as an example, is a 13-1 base and a 14-2 base non-guaranteed in 2023, 2024, you need to have this money to where it would be something like a $8 million base, $5 million roster bonus. Next year, $7 million base, $7 million roster bonus. It acts as a vesting guarantee for you. Even though it's not guaranteed on a piece of paper, by having a roster bonus that's due third day of the league year, it's essentially like, okay, you're either going to guarantee me this money or you're going to let me get to free agency when everybody's in free agency and there's money to be found. So when you do these deals and everybody focuses on, you know, oh, what's the annual value of the deal and what's that injury guarantee on the deal and all that stuff, 
you need to focus on the structure of the contract. And I know we don't look enough at the, the dead money in these deals and the impact that that can have to kind of protect your position. In those last years, just put stuff that's in there that acts in some way, shape, or form as a guarantee. You know, that that's what you need to do. So... You know, they, they, these teams need, uh, the agents need to do that more often. And, you know, if teams push back on it, well, screw them. You know, don't do the deals. You know, you, you got to know that that stuff is going to come up at some point in time. Um, you know, if you are these rare players who do make it to year four and year five. So you got to protect yourself in those situations. All right, let's see. Uh, next question. Alex, what are the contracts looking like for first round picks, second round? Um, so we have some estimates on there, but those probably aren't the best of ones. Uh, I keep my own draft projections. There is some, because COVID screwed up the, uh, the stuff. I, I'll have to give Nick the hard copy of this to update our stuff. Um, so I believe this year the top pick in the draft is going to get a contract that's worth $39.76 million. Um, the top of the second round should be about 9.9. And the top of the third round should get a contract that's worth about $5.85 million. Um, so that's what it'll be. <laughs> Uh, Dave, why haven't the Bengals and Chargers uh, placed the fifth-year options on the quarterbacks yet? Tua got his. Obviously, they will, but why wait? Uh, what I found is that most of the teams nowadays, just as a procedural thing, seem to wait until almost the last possible minute to do it, like the week before. Um, I think partially... And, you know, th th this is not related to these specific players. Um, but I, I think part of the reason, you know, for example, like the 49ers said, Brandon Ayuk is definitely going to get it. But they, as far as I know, they haven't done it yet. I think part of it is you just want to have just that little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of leeway um, that's in there in the event that you wanted to trade one of these guys during the draft. Let's say something came up during the draft and you wanted to trade the player. And I, I think what you want to do is you want to still leave that decision of exercising the option up to the other team rather than you doing it yourself. Even though it probably doesn't change anything, and obviously if someone is trading for them, they're probably picking up that option. But you want to give them that ability to, to kind of do that. So I think teams hold off for that. I, I think in... Some rare cases, um, you know, you wait to see what happens with the draft maybe before you decide to pick up that option, especially because nowadays injuries um, are an issue. So, I mean, as teams begin their off-season workout programs, just as an example, what if somebody blows out their Achilles during the off-season program? You know, are you going to pick up that option at that point, which is fully guaranteed? Maybe not. Um you know, so you, you spend the time. And the other thing is when you, you have 
possibilities of drafting a replacement, and then the guy, you know, maybe becomes uh, a little bit more expendable. Um, you know, you don't want to pick up those options until last possible minute, uh, because I believe the date is usually after the draft. Um, you're doing it with the quarterbacks, even though they don't fall into any of those buckets, just because when you don't have a quarterback, you don't want any situation that pops up to where you just keep getting pressured. Where's my option? Where's my option? Where's my option? It's like, hey, we didn't do it for Burrow until May 1st. Like, if we didn't do it for him until May 1st, so, you know, why why are you bugging me in February? You know, so I, I think that's that's kind of a reason um, why that is. Tua, I think he got his because of public pressure. You know, you, you started having all these stories coming out about how the Dolphins were going to be looking to bring in a Brady or a Lamar Jackson or whatever. And I think they felt the pressure from it and just were like, yeah, we're we're going to pick it up. And to me, that one probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I think I think they probably looked at Daniel Jones. Um and I think they probably looked at it and were like, well, you know, Daniel Jones probably should have had his option picked up. And I know of guys who um, are in the league who would have picked up his option, um, you know, even though obviously he had not been a very good quarterback, they would have done it for the same reasons that the Buccaneers and the Falcons had picked, um, not the Falcons and the Titans um, had picked up the the Winston and Mariota options, you know, years ago. Um, you know, it was simply because the, upside and salary is so high that maybe you're better off, you know, landing with a 20, you know, $22 million charge or whatever, $20 million charge for the player um, versus having to go the franchise tag route or free agency route. And I can understand that, you know, if the guy still starts for you, which Winston, um, I don't believe did, and Mariota definitely didn't, you know, played a couple of games, you know, if somebody starts for you, the salary in the $20 million range is perfectly fine. You know, if you're starting 15, 16, 17 games, the problem is when you're riding the bench, you know, that's not a backup salary anymore. But I I think the Dolphins got talked into that deal from uh, every, you know, a lot of other stuff. Richard, uh, what does Buda Baker's next contract look like? Um, You know, after this one, Whenever this runs out, I mean, unless Arizona does something crazy and stupid, um, you know, I, I would guess, you know, you'd be looking at a deal that'd be like nine, ten million dollars a season, you know, something like that. Um, you know, probably where you'd be at. Monetize the gold. Does the NFL need a post June one designation for trades? Yeah, I think they do. Um you know, I, I think that, again, when you're looking at making the offseason more fun and you're looking at making the offseason dominate the news cycle, which is a lot of what the NFL is looking to do, um, having a post-June 1 trade option, I, I think, would actually be work. It would work out very well. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be all in favor for that. Greg, you're an owner drafting at five. Do you take a $30 million gamble on Carter? No, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, it, in a sense, it's probably not a $30 million gamble. I mean, it, look, if whatever 
happens, um, you know, from a legal standpoint or anything else, I mean, you're probably going to get covered, um, you know, in, in those kind of instances. Uh, you know, I, I think you might have a situation that comes up, and this hasn't happened in years, so I don't know how well um, this would work out. You probably have a situation, if you go back and you look at uh, Justin Blackman from the Jaguars, who uh, ended up being, you know, terrible draft selection. Um they did a contract with him that was a little bit different than, if I remember correctly at least, than um, many other deals at the time. Um, I think, you know, I think, and I could be wrong on this, uh, I, I think they had something there. Gosh, I don't remember if his deal was incentivized um, I think what they did is they used roster bonuses. If I remember right, he didn't get the full signing bonus like most guys would use. What they did was they guaranteed roster bonuses um, in future league years that would prorate. So it, it met all the rules. But obviously, because, you know, he was... Um, uh, you know, never available, always suspended. They they were never going to have to pay those out. So I think you would probably have to do a unique contract structure like that. And I, I don't know if that exists in today's NFL. Um, you know, so I, I'm not sure. I, I think that would be a... Uh, I, I, I would probably just stay away from it. Uh, Peter, will the Jets ever be a functional high-end NFL operation or are we doomed to decades of despair? <sighs> I, have... I can't say it's doomed to decades. I mean, just by dumb luck, you've got to have a season somewhere in there that gets to the playoffs, right? I mean, Joe, Joe Walton got to the playoffs, right? Bruce Coslett, he got to the playoffs once, didn't he? Uh, eight and eight, maybe. I think he got there. Um, uh, I think we need another drink for this one. Um, so, yeah, the Jets, you know, the only thing that uh, helps the Jets is the fact that the Texans, uh, Texans exist. Texans exist. Um, <laughs> um, you know, they, they are a... Uh, they're probably a little bit more of a mess than the Jets even. Um, I think the problem with the Jets is they don't have... I know a lot of people say Woody's a bad owner. Woody's not a bad owner, right? The Jets don't have... They don't have the unlimited budget, right? They're, they're not the Eagles. They're not the Falcons. They're not teams like that. Um, but it's not like they don't have a budget. Um Woody does metal every now and then when things start to go off the rails. I think he he meddles in there. But I think the I think the bigger issue is whatever that leadership structure is with ownership, with Woody and team presidents and everyone else. Um I don't know if he just gets swayed by the last person he talked to, or if there's too many voices in a room, or whatever it is. I, I feel like they, they, there's just never a plan. Um, when it comes to to whatever they're doing uh, with the organization, like 
when you look at the hiring stuff that they've done, for example, um, you know, you, you look back and you see, it's always like, well, we're going to go to a consulting firm. It's like, you may as well just go to me to give you a head coach. I mean, that, that, that's as good as using these consulting firms that are going to throw you a bunch of stuff that makes it look like you're doing a ton of work. And they're going to give you the same list that you can just go find by looking online and saying, who's a hot candidate? They're going to give you the same list that you can get by going and calling up two or three guys that represent a lot of the coaches in the NFL and in the NCAA and say, who you got that you think is good for these from to be my next head coach or to be my general manager? That's that's all it is. And they rely way too much on that. They rely way too much on the voices of like a Bill Polian. Bill Polian, NFL Hall of Famer, wonderful stories, wonderful man. If you ever get a chance to meet him, his day in the NFL was ages ago. You know, and it's like, well, I'm going to rely on that for hiring advice. I'm going to rely on Peyton Manning because he's got a, he's buddies with someone. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, you have a coach in mind and who you're going to hire, and you get scared off by it because a reporter, in this case, Manish Mehta, who got, you know, whatever, I've met Manish, she's okay. Um, you know, but got thrown off the Jets beat and had a lot of other stuff that went on. Basically went on a crusade against the guy and it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to hire him. Now, that probably wouldn't have been a good hire for the Jets anyway, but that's not the reason for you not to make that hire. So, you know, that that's the first thing is that the there's like a lack of vision from themselves. And you're relying on outside people who, for the most part, have an agenda anyway in what they're going to bring to you. Um, you become too reactionary sometimes with no thought of the future. And the first thing that set the Jets really off was they needed a fall guy for when things went south in uh, 2012, I guess it was, and they fired Mike Tannenbaum. That's fine, okay? And I know people are going, well, they kept Rex and they shouldn't have kept Rex too. Fine, whatever. The problem though is they fired Mike Tannenbaum as their general manager. This was very different than when they promoted Mike Tannenbaum to general manager. They didn't have another thought in place. They didn't have a vision in place. They didn't have anything in place. It was, we need a fall guy. Mike is the guy to go. We like Rex. So we're going to keep him on board, but Mike is the guy to go. And they just didn't have anyone. It was just like, all right, well, let's bring in a guy who does the same stuff in John Idzik, but probably not as good. And he's a polar opposite in terms of how he's going to you know, run the team. You know, it's going to be tight-lipped, pulled back, paranoia, whatever else. Um, you know, that that's how he's going to run the team. And in two years, he basically ran that team into the ground. And, you know, they, then you go and you, you, you go through the McCagnan era and it's like, okay, now we just need the polar opposite. We just need a, a guy who now who's a, he's just a pure draft guy, right? He's a, you know, head of college scouting, whatever, with Texans, you know, it's, uh, that's what we need, which is fine, you know, again. And then you went through this thing where you, you let the outside voice of, in this case, Adam Gase convince you. No, you need somebody else running the show, not Mike McCagnan. That's fine. Mike McCagnan wasn't doing a great job by any stretch. 
Um, but you let him sign a bunch of players to expensive contracts and free agency and run a draft, and then you fire him? Because he didn't communicate well enough within the organization or something like that? I, I don't remember what the, the silly reasoning was. So it, it's like, you know, who's doing this? Who's who's running the show? Like, where does any of that make any sense? So I, I think it's more those things that are really the problem for the Jets. It's that that outside voice stuff that just really kind of derails things, um, you know, for them when it comes to stuff. And, you know, they don't make the investments and in other things. You know, I, I think when it comes to utilizing analytics in any in any way, shape, or form, um, when it comes to, to contracts and stuff like that, Jets are way old school. You know, they, they are way behind the curve of many of these other teams. Um, you see it with the way they slow play a lot of these, these deals that they do. You see it with the way they approach the draft. Now, last year they got two great draft picks. So, you know, not going to complain, you know, obviously about the, the guys they brought in. But, you know, just, just the overall way that they do it, it it's, again, it's not a long-term, it's not a long-term thing that's going to work, um, you know, within the rest of the NFL. You know, you, you defensive guy is a head coach versus offensive guy. And, you know, that might be fine. But, you know, if you, if you compare it to like the Rex hire or something like that, it's not like you've got the great defensive mastermind that's there. You know, if, you, if you're looking for someone as a head coach that, um, you know, maybe does something innovative, it's probably not that. You know, motivation, yeah, you're getting a lot out of, um, you know, the guys you have and you're utilizing them well, I'm not saying you don't, um, but you almost feel like with the Jets, it's more of a, more of a personnel thing, right? Like it's, um, you, you watch the games last year, even where they, they had the games where the defense was playing really well, you never got the sense that the Jets were doing things within the games that were, you know, very innovative or doing anything defensively that was tricking guys into making bad plays. It was, you know, you had DJ Reed having a great season. You had Quinn and Williams having a great season. You had Sauce Gardner having a great season. And, you know, it was more like, well, I'm going to line my 11 up, you line your 11 up, and I trust my guys to make a play. That's not a long-term anything. So I, I think the Jets just kind of miss out in that regard. And I think they just don't they don't value it, they don't trust it, or maybe the guys they bring in that they consult with um don't value the the thinking outside the box or looking for someone who's a little bit different and has a little bit of a different approach, um, you know, to, to utilizing more concepts to building a team. So I, I think that in that regard, I think the Jets are just behind many, many franchises in the NFL, which makes it difficult for them. Um, you know, and so some of the stuff, you know, like the hugging of Zach Wilson to see, oh, you know, is, is he big enough or not? Like, to me, that was just silly stuff that ends up, you know, going out there because somebody's got to write a story. But, you know, it, it's 
you know, it's just little things like that that just kind of, you know, drive you a little nuts, um, you know, with the team overall. So, you know, I, I don't think the Jets in any way, shape or form are headed in a direction that makes you think they turn the corner. Um, you know, I know some people will say that. I don't see that at all. I think they got a couple of better players this past year in the draft. And, you know, they had, had a couple of free agents that uh, did better than expected. But there's really nothing fundamentally different about this Jets team than there was under the Mike McCagnan era or there was under the tail end of the Tannenbaum era. Not, nothing is like Idzik. Idzik was just a black hole. Um, but, you know, there, there's really nothing there that excites you too much at the at the moment other than maybe Aaron Rodgers just coming in and hopefully having one MVP season um but in terms of anything long term no there's just nothing there uh Robert the most important question should Cody have won the main event of Wrestlemania uh no I don't think so I kind of uh you know for when I watch this and my daughter loves it right now so she really now, she likes to watch the women wrestlers um, much more than the men, though. She does like uh, Seth Rollins, and she loves to hate Dominic Mysterio. Um, I kind of like the whole Roman Reigns thing. Um, you know, I, I find him to be pretty entertaining when I uh, flip him on and he comes on the TV with uh, Paul Heyman and, you know, his whole group of guys that come out there. So I, I kind of think it builds better... Um, you know, as long as he's going to wrestle, uh, you know, to have him out there than somebody else's champ. Connor, do you foresee any positions being drafted higher than previous drafts this year due to reassessment of value? No, mm -mm. I, I don't think anyone has uh, really changed on that. I think the only thing, and I don't remember who posted this. Um, ah, somebody, somebody had it on Twitter. Um I do think there is more discussion now than there has been in the past of why you don't draft a running back as high, maybe why you don't draft a linebacker as high. But I, I still don't think it, it's gotten to the point yet where um, we're really changing the way we we value and grade the players overall, um, you know, based on positions they play. Uh, let's see here. I think this is projected salaries. I'm just assuming. Um, this is from Otto. Is the cap floor rolling three or four year limit? Uh, so it's a three year limit right now. I think for the uh, end of the CBA, I think it's a four year for the, the last four. Uh, why do rookie salaries not cascade proportionally? 40% discount between eight compared to four is wild. And then marginal salary reduction at nine. So... Yeah, if you plot the numbers out, um, you'll see that it, it's a... You know, I, I have to remember, I'm assuming you're going by the cap stuff for this year. I'm just quickly looking at the image that you have here. Um, if you plot out the signing bonus numbers, or if you do a search, maybe I have some stuff there. If you look at a... Uh, do it on Google or on the website, um, something like over-the-cap drafting decisions and the salary cap. This is draft stuff I did years ago. Um, 
you can see that the, the draft slots originally match up very close with that Jimmy Johnson chart. So you, you kind of get that um, kind of weird exponential decay where, you know, you, you've got the stuff and then it just kind of starts to smooth out. Um, now, if you're using the, the full cap numbers in here, or uh, maybe this is the annual values you have in here. Um, again, I'm not sure, sorry, uh, as to, to which are in there. Um, but yeah, it, it's, the, you know, they get thrown off because the base salaries are the same and you got 25% rule and stuff in there. But the signing bonus that, that locks you in on your, your, you know, starting point for everybody. And it's just that sense that, you know, number one is super valuable. Number two is pretty valuable. Three, four, five. And, you know, when you get eight, nine, it's almost like they hold it the same. And then, um, you know, you get the declines after that. And then it kind of steadies out. And, you know, it's like that, that drop between 32, 33. I mean, that's a big reason why. And I know people get caught up with that 50-year option. But that's a big reason why the second round pick is a lot more valuable than an end of a first round pick. It's just a lot cheaper. Disgusting Brothers co-founder, out of the 124 teams in the four major sports league, which team has the longest active playoff drought? Um, I think somebody mentioned that was the Jets recently, right? Was that where the, the Kings made the playoffs? So that made the Jets the longest? Is that what it was? I don't know. So I'm assuming it's the Jets one. Uh, Mike, can the Cards make Buddha the highest paid safety and just front load it as they are in full rebuild? No, this no. Well, they could. Um, what point would there be to do that? Like, why... Why would you want the highest paid safety when you're just a rebuilding football team? Trade him. You know, if he's good enough to be the highest paid safety in the NFL, just trade him. Get that value for him. Jacob, how much has the 50 year option changed the value of the first round draft picks? Is it a marginal change or do NFL teams covet that option? So NFL teams definitely covet the option. Okay. Um, should they? I think the answer is no. Uh, I don't think that, you know, and, and I know I've heard, I think Spielman was one of them that we talked about it. I think it was talking about Bridgewater. And I can understand that, you know, especially on a quarterback. I think he was the one that was talking about that. Uh, you know, was mentioning about coming up into the first round because they wanted that first, uh, that, um, that option year that's included. And, I, I I just don't agree with it. You know, there, there's not enough. Um, there's not enough of a success rate to need to jump in just for that option, where you're giving away any kind of value. Now, if you're not giving a lot of a lot away to you know jump into the end of the first round, I think that's fine. But otherwise, you know, I, I'm not. I don't really care that much about it. You know, even if we look at a quarterback position here, um, you know, for example, this year, the fifth round options, uh, let me pull up the numbers for the fifth round. So the fifth year options for a first round, uh, well, not all first round players, for a quarterback. Um, so the low level for a quarterback is 20.3. So that's a guy who hasn't even hit the playtime escalators. So, you know, that basically means it's a bust. So at that point, you know, fifth round option is useless. Um, next one up is a 23-2. Uh, 
That's your basically he's not good enough to make a Pro Bowl, but you know he's hit his playtime escalators. Um, you know, obviously that is much lower than having to extend your guy at forty million dollars. Um, you know, that's a savings of seventeen. But you know, I, again, I would say, what are you giving up for that seventeen? You know, it depends on the cost of what you're giving up to move. You know, into that first round. Um, to get that, you know, once you get into the one and two Pro Bowl category, you're talking about a $30 million player, a $32 million player. Um, there's value to having that option at that point because the player probably is looking at a $50 million a year contract, give or take a little bit. So, you know, having that extra year under contract kind of, um, you know, extends your limit with them. It gives you more um, more leeway with your salary cap when you extend the player. But, you know, the, the odds of the odds of the player probably being that Pro Bowl level guy, um, you know, are probably not high enough to give away another valuable pick. So I, I guess the way that I would answer it is it depends on what you're giving up to move back into the first round for the player um, as to whether or not it makes sense to do it. But teams, teams value it. Um, 100%. Uh, Native Son. People say Ravens overpaid for OBJ. Objectively, how can that be proven? And by what dollar amount did they overpay, assuming it's true? So, a couple of things. Uh, number one, I would say, let's look historically at players who are 30 years old, give or take a little, and have been out of the NFL for a season... You know, how many of those players signed a contract that ranks, uh, let's see, it's probably the, is that the top free agent signing of the year? That wide receiver? Let me see. Yeah, that would rank either number one among all free agents at a position or... Top 25-ish, top 20-ish, it's a little below that. Top 20 at a position. How many players who have been technically considered a quote-unquote street free agent um, rank that high in a salary range? Uh, you know, and the other thing that I would I would bring up is, okay, let, let's, let's even say we, we don't even take that into account. How much more is he being paid than Brandon Cooks? You know, five million more a year. How much is he being paid more than Michael Thomas? Five million more a year. And that's baseline. You know, Thomas is, it might be a bigger gap. And, you know, like I mentioned before with OBJ, his incentives are reachable. So probably we're looking at more like a 16, 17 kind of deal. So, I think you could look at it historically. You're not going to find any kind of comparable situation, um, you know, where guys kind of sit out and do that. I mean, the closest would be Gronkowski. Um, you know, it was probably brought in more as a favor for Tom Brady than anything else. Um, you know, and his was a contract that was 10, I think, at a time when, gosh, I don't even know what tight end market was at that that point in time, 13. 
14. I, I don't even know. I'm not sure. Um, you know, but it, it, again, it was a year or whatever commitment. Um, you know, and here I, I would say that, so even if you really don't want to use that, I would just look at those comparable players. You're $5 million over that. So, I mean, that, that just at a minimum... You know, you're five million over, um, over those numbers. Near, if uh, Bryce Young goes number one, how do you think politics impacts Houston's decision? Uh, passing on Stroud all but puts division rival Colts in the driver's seat to land him. Could be a bad look for the front office. Um, agent's history with the Texans, so. You know, I, I, I think that I, I think we've gotten to the point where that stuff, you know, certainly with the agent, um, is out. Um, you know, I, I think the days of um, teams looking at an agent and saying, "I don't even want to take this guy because I just don't want to deal with these agents," I think that's done. I think the the rookie wage scale. Um, and rules about extensions and everything else more or less effectively ended that type of um, decision-making. Uh, as for, you know, sending players to another team, I don't know. I, I don't think that plays that big of a factor anymore. Um, obviously, it can really sink you, um, you know, if a guy goes and he ends up being successful. But I don't think that plays into the decision making. Um, I, I don't think too much. But the agent stuff, I, I would say that th those days are are over and done with. Colin, what would be the effect of CBA negotiations if the rookie wage scale was changed to match the Fitzgerald Spielberger chart of contract values? Would 65% of the league be better off, thereby creating more leverage for players? Um, I'd have to run the numbers on it to see where it would be. Um, but yeah, the, the players on the back end would be making more money. The guys on the top would make less at first. But again, you know, you'd be in a situation where You'd be getting an extension, um, you know, if you're one of the players that pans out. So, you know, I, I think that uh, it would balance out pretty quickly, even if you were a top pick. Uh, really, the guys who would get hurt by it would probably be those players who were selected in like the top 10, maybe even top 15, uh, who kind of bust out of the league because the, are the numbers, the numbers, would reflect more um, that bust potential in there, and you know you 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 would lose out if you were one of those players, um, you know overall. Jill May, are NFL teams more or less aware of the loser's curse? Earlier picks sometimes being worse than later picks doesn't seem like it based on their behavior, but I'm not exactly sure how their behavior would be affected if they knew it. So teams know it. It's not like they don't. I mean, the, the data is out there. Um, I just think that it, it's more of an overconfidence thing. It's the same thing that happens with like when you extend your running back or really a lot of positions, but running back in particular. 
um, you kind of get in this mode where it's like you go to yourself and you go, okay, I know it's not a great decision when you look at it like objectively, but I'm telling you, I know that our guy, our guy is great. You know, so it's not going to impact our guy. Like Panthers, when they sign Christian McCaffrey, it's like, oh yeah, I I know that, you know, LaShawn McCoy, or not that, not that, uh, Le'Veon Bell, you know, didn't hit it with the Jets. I know that, but, you know, Christian McCaffrey's great. Like he's, he he's not going to follow, you know, that. Like he he's not Todd Gurley. You know, he's not going to break down like that. No, no, he's great. You know, after he runs for 300 yards in two years and he's always hurt, you trade him away, right? Um, I think teams just have overconfidence in their scouting ability. It's like you, you've you've got these guys and it's just like, you know, I believe, I believe, I believe. And, you know, you, you, you get hung up on, you know, a certain prospect that, you know, you, you've just identified as the guy. And you just believe in your heart that that guy is, you know, he he always is going to hit that top quartile projection. Where if you do the draft charts based on that, they change dramatically. Um, but there's no logical reason to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to do that. You know, the Jets are a great example of that right now. You're talking about a general manager who picked the two best, arguably the two best players in the draft last year, Um, you know, in uh, Gardner and Wilson. I think Gardner, that's a lock. Wilson could go up, could go down. Um, But either way, he picked two terrific players in that draft. A couple other guys, too, I guess. Um, And it's the same general manager that drafted absolute disasters. You know, guys like Denzel Mims and Zach Wilson, Elijah Moore. So what is there, you know, when somebody gets on me for, you know, talking about the Brees Hall move or the Elijah Vera Tucker move, why should I believe that Joe Douglas has the magic wand? Because that's what everyone will tell me. I trust my general manager. Stick to the numbers, cap boy. I'm sticking to the numbers. And I'll stick to the numbers with Joe Douglas. Like, if this is the guy that, you know, took Makai Becton, this is the guy who took Denzel Mims, this is the guy who took Zach Wilson, this is the guy who uh, took Elijah Moore, this is the guy who took whomever. Why in the world should I look at him as trading up for Elijah Vera Tucker and simply go, yeah, that makes sense. You know, he's, he's always he's always right. You know, when when he takes Gardner, why should I go, oh, yeah, he's a lock to be a superstar? Joe Douglas said it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, his own individual track record is basically garbage for a couple of years. So why in the world would I look at it that way? And you can do that for everybody in the draft. Not just him. Do it for everybody. It's an inexact science. Teams are very good. I've said this all the time. Teams are very good at identifying players who do belong in that top part of the draft. But they're not perfect at it. 
not even close. So I, I think what's happened is we've gotten pretty good at identifying a lot of traits that do make a very good football player. But we still don't have a, a grasp on those traits that maybe make someone a below average football player or in some cases a bust. Um, you know, they still miss on that. So, you know, I, I think that uh, teams just get overconfident and they know it. But it's just like we did all the work. You know, we, we, we crossed every box. We interviewed him. We asked, we asked him every ridiculous question you could possibly ask somebody. We loved his answers. You know, we watched the film. We watched the tape. He just he pops off the tape. Just wait till you watch him in a game. You know, we love everything he did in college. We love everything that he did at the Combine. We love every answer he gave. We This, this is the guy. And then he can't play a lick when he gets into the NFL. You know, you just get overconfident in those selections. So I, I think that's what it is. Uh, Detroit Lions seller cap on the OTC site you have teams positional spending by year that appears to be capped you have positional spending by APY might have that in the premium section I'm not even sure I, I track that stuff consulting things I do I don't know if we have that online Ricker Giants need to create more cap room to sign the draft class plus any in season moves Leonard Williams seems like most likely way to get the money see any other way to free up some more room uh Rescinding Barkley's tag doesn't seem likely. No, they're not going to do that. Um, let's see, Giants. Who else do they have here? So, I mean, they'll probably open up some cap room if they extend Dexter Lawrence. Um, they could always restructure Daniel Jones. They can restructure Dory Jackson. Um, Williams is the most logical candidate to do something with. But, uh, you know, there's a couple of, you know, different guys that they could do stuff with. But I would say... Lawrence extension, uh, Jackson Williams would be the two, and Daniel Jones would be your fallback. But remember, you don't have to sign your draft class and all that stuff for a while. So it's like you've got some time with it, um, you know, to do some things. So I think there's some uh, some time there. Um, Let's see. Any more questions here? Uh, let's see. Is the Henson Hooker hype legit? Um, I would have no idea. You know, that's uh, not my department. You know, I, I can give you numbers. I, I can't give you anything. I always say this. I could give you nothing on anything that has to do with draft prospects whatsoever. All I could do is once they're drafted, kind of give you an idea based on um, everything else. Uh, let's see. Brian. Jason, they, they both had. Okay, so uh, this is about the Hopkins thing. This is follow-ups to that earlier question. Cardinals don't trade him. They owe him 19-5. Once season starts, don't give a pick to take that on. They'll end up eating some of it. Uh, Bears paid about a half of Quinn's remaining salary to affect the trade. If traded after seven, the acquiring team would owe no more than 11-9. 
Yeah, you know, you'd have to end up eating most of it. I mean, um, what was Quinn at last year? You know, the two they traded were Smith and Quinn. I think they ate all of Smith's salary except for the minimum. Uh, let me see what they ate on Quinn. So Quinn went to the Eagles. Yeah, Quinn went for the minimum. So the Bears ate all his salary. Um, so you, you, you'd be doing that same situation. All right, and our last question, Ryan. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Um, as a Jets fan, there's not too much meaning to there. Uh, to to give a quote from the uh, the great old movies of uh, Bill and Ted, every rose has its thorn, just like every night has its dawn. So uh, I think we'll call that a night with um, with that one. Get some uh, poison in there. Um, so I think that'll do it for me. So uh, at least we got a podcast in this week. Uh, just kind of a random uh, mishmash of some stuff, but at least got to answer some questions. Um, not sure if I'll be back next week with a podcast. Hopefully I will be back with Nelly, at least in something decent versus me trying to, uh, fit into a gaming chair in front of this. So I, what I've decided is podcast room number three is a really bad idea. Uh, this one's going to hurt the back in the morning, hurt the back, hurt the knees, hurt everything else, but, uh, at least we got through it. So everybody have a great week and, uh, hopefully I'll talk to you all again soon.